Kia ora, I'm Emil Bonovan, and today on The Detail... My name is Hedley Thomas, and for the past six months I've been investigating the sudden disappearance and probable murder of Lynn Dawson. This is The Teacher's Pet, a podcast series about a star footballer, his schoolgirl lover, and a wife who vanishes. When investigative journalist Hedley Thomas released The Teacher's Pet podcast in 2018, the series was an instant hit the latest in a string of true crime podcasts that captured the public imagination. A judge has ordered a new trial for the man whose case received worldwide attention on the popular podcast serial. Adnan Syed was sentenced to life in prison in 2000. The Supreme Court is weighing the fate of a man sitting on death row right now and whether racial bias played a role in a previous trial. Curtis Flowers has been tried six times for quadruple murder, but he maintains his innocence. The killings rocked the small town of Winona. If you're black, we get you. Last year, the Peabody Award-winning podcast In the Dark examined Flowers' different trials, finding that 61 of 72 jurors in his six trials were white in a county that's about half black, and every white juror when he was convicted voted guilty. But the teacher's pet has now had a real-world impact. Chris Dawson found guilty of murdering wife Lynette at Bayview 40 years ago. He was the married teacher who took a schoolgirl lover and was long suspected of killing Lynn, whose body has never been found. Today, a Supreme Court judge ruling he lied again and again. So today on The Detail, the power and the procedures of podcasts as investigative journalism and the legal and moral risks you take when you delve into cold cases. Do you listen to true crime podcasts? I have on occasion. Ali Romanos is a media lawyer who specialises in defamation. Personally, I'm more into the Netflix style of extended <laughs> vision, murder investigations, those sorts of things. Well, I mean, I suppose it's still relevant to true crime TV shows. Like the the question of when you are listening to stuff that looks at real life cases, does it ever make you nervous for the people who are doing that work? Um, it does. I, I often think, you know, for example, when I'm watching some of these big Netflix making a murderers and the staircases, and I, I think of all the the legals that would have gone on behind the scenes um, to get these shows and productions to air. There isn't one iota of physical evidence in this case that connects Stephen Avery to it. In fact, the sheriff was told by the police, you have the wrong guy. Oh, myself, I've been involved in several films and productions, some podcasts doing the legal vetting uh, mm. for the producers and creators of them to steer them from you know legal difficulties. So when I do watch something on Netflix or whatever, then um, I am I do have my lawyer's hat on when I'm when I'm watching. We're talking now partly because of a trial that has just concluded in Australia, which uh, has been dubbed the, the teacher's pet trial. Very broadly, can you explain for people who, who are completely unfamiliar with this what the story is, what has kind of happened here over the past few years? Basically, Chris Dawson, chap in Australia, uh, his wife, she disappeared in January 1982, and Mr. Dawson had already commenced, as it transpired, a relationship with a student or former student of his. The wife's disappearance caused a lot of public interest, as these things often do. And, you know, over as the decades unfolded, there were coronial inquests into her disappearance and or death. 
various TV programs on Nine Network and ABC, as with a lot of these things. But then more recently, there was a podcast created by a very experienced journalist, Hedley Thomas, who'd been a journalist since 1984. And, and he, he created, I believe it was a 14-episode podcast in which he not only investigated it, he, he interviewed potential witnesses and, and dug into whether, in fact, Chris Dawson was the perpetrator of this offence. The show's uncovered new evidence and witnesses the events leading up to her disappearance. And although this 36-year-old cold case remains unsolved, the investigation has led the New South Wales Police to look into historic claims of sexual abuse by teachers at a local high school. And, um, well, funnily enough, in 2018, after the podcast had gained huge currency and listenership. The police charged Mr Dawson in 2018 and then uh, we have had a judge alone trial in New South Wales with a judge alone, not with a jury, and that led to Mr Dawson being found guilty of the murder purely based on circumstantial evidence. I'm satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the only rational inference that the circumstances enable me to draw is that Lynette Dawson died on about 8 January 1982 as the result of a conscious and voluntary act committed by Mr Dawson with the intention of causing her death. Christopher Michael Dawson on the charge that on or about 8 January 1982 at Bayview or elsewhere in the state of New South Wales, uh, you did murder Lynette Dawson. I find you guilty. You may sit down. And, I mean, it's, it's an interesting judgment. Um, in the judgment... The podcast, the word podcast referred to 54 times. Healy Thomas himself was called to give evidence. Few people know more about the case than journalist Headley Thomas of the Australian newspaper. He's documented nearly a year of exhaustive investigation in his hit podcast, The Teacher's Pet. His name appears 137 times in the judgment. So clearly uh, the podcast had a significant impact on the case. One of the issues in the case was whether the credibility and reliability of certain witnesses and their evidence and their memories had been, I suppose, infected by the influence of the podcast, they having listened to it, being involved. The trial was judge alone, and that was partly because of all the media hype and publicity it's received right around the world, and there was a perception that he couldn't get a fair trial if a jury was involved. That led to the question at trial um, whether some of these witnesses whether their, their, their evidence was flawed or infected or corrupted by their, their association with the podcast. And, and um, you know, we're, what we're dealing with here is 40-year-old memories in some cases, some cases longer. So and we all know how memories can change and morph. So there was one interesting aspect in the case in the judgment that was one of the witnesses agreed that uh, the podcast had caused her to think differently about Mr Dawson and, to, to see him with a, a new suspicion. And so we have witnesses who have these memories, which may have been initially innocuous, but when with the influence of the podcast and, and, and things they learned in that process being involved, their memories maybe took on different different turns and, and things. One of the interesting things about this podcast is it wasn't exactly objective, was it? You know, it wasn't what we would describe as, I mean, it contained excellent reporting, but it wasn't what we would describe as being straight reporting. And I'm presuming that that throws up some really interesting 
legal, um, well, not not necessarily questions, but um, that that is interesting in a legal in a legal sense. Would you say? Yeah, I mean that, that it is an interesting issue with podcasts. So you know, generally we have uh, straight news stories which should be balanced, fair, and accurate, um, and not take a particular angle. And then we have on the other side of the coin opinion pieces, which uh, by their by their nature are designed to sort of take a particular view. Um, and balances is, is, is less of a less of a concern um, from a sort of legal standpoint. Podcasts sort of fall into a funny space um, from a sort of media ethical standpoint. Most news media in New Zealand, at least, you know, they're covered by the media council, formerly the press council, mm-hmm. or the Broadcasting Standards Authority. But if a if an individual just decides to set up a podcast on Spotify or whatever, and then there's no real sort of regulatory mechanism by which someone can make a, a complaint to a media regulator. It's it's really a matter of that person complying with media laws, um, particularly defamation, invasion of privacy. So so those are the those are the sorts of legal considerations arising from podcasts. What are the risks that Headley Thomas and, and the Australian, which is the, the publisher of, of the podcast, the, the Teacher's Pet, what are the risks that they are taking on in putting this podcast out there? Well, the principal risk I would think is defamation. You know, if you if you are digging into a cold case and you're accusing or implying that someone's guilty of a serious crime and and they take objection to that, and then they're, you're, you're liable to be to be sued for that. I mean, in this case, it led to a prosecution and Mr. Dawson being found guilty. So um, defamation is not really their biggest concern now, but certainly it's a, for anyone out there who's thinking, I'd like to investigate this particular case and publish my own broadcast. You know, there are significant risks in doing so. For uh, Mr. Uh, Headley Thomas, and he's a very experienced journalist. Been a journalist since 1984. Um, if he had the if he had the the, the backing of the the Australian, have their legal resources and such to 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 vet and to check and um, things before they went to air, whether a you know defence to defamation could could stack up. Um, so that's the that's the sort of resource thing that someone Hedley Thomas's situation. Had which an ordinary person, ordinary punter, might not have. But the you know the legal considerations in a cold case like this are, well, I think, probably less than if if you're looking at a, something that's more recently happened. The thing with with doing these sorts of shows and productions is that if there are issues before the court, what we call subjudice in the in the business, if 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 a matter's before the court, then um, there shouldn't be media out there which may influence a a trial. So once a person has been charged with a crime, you'll often see very little details um, being published about things in the investigation and such, because ultimately, if, if, if those are published and it could influence a, a jury's thinking and such, then that can derail a trial. And one of the criticisms in the Scott Watson case was that the police uh, released information about Mr. Watson, which I think he would say would prejudice the, the minds of the jury in that case which led to his um, guilty verdict. The main considerations for a, a media publisher proposing to, to, to report on sort of crime will be defamation and potentially contempt of court through publishing subjudice material that, that, can, that can have a detrimental impact on a person's fair trial rights. 
Tim Watkin, welcome back to The Detail. Nice to be here with you always, Emil. Tim Watkin is RNZ's executive producer of podcasts and series. We're going to be talking about true crime podcasts, uh, but I put this to you as a starting point. There are true crime podcasts, and then there are investigative journalism podcasts that look at real-life crimes, and these are not the same thing. No, they're not. I mean, the they can each be a subset of each other in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, there are true crime podcasts that are what I'd call crime tourists, um, and I don't think they serve uh, a lot of anybody, really. Mm. Um, certainly the ones that I've worked on and, and what I would require as necessary for a worthy true crime podcast is an element of public interest, an element of some kind of justice question that needs answering. If it's just repeating um, misery, then uh, you've got to ask whether it's worth doing. But mm. there are certainly podcasts out there that do that and do very well and get a big audience on it. And from that point of view, you can argue that there is certainly an audience demand just to hear bizarre, hard, quirky, whatever, stories of people's criminal activities. Yeah, it's horses of causes in a way, isn't it? People are fascinated by people who are living lives outside the norm. Yeah, and the things that humans are capable of doing for one another. You have uh, produced or executive produced many podcasts for uh, RNZ. You are the podcast boss. You are one of my many bosses. Um, So many. (laughs) Can you tell me a bit about the most legally spicy podcasts that you have worked on? Look, two come to mind. One is, um, from a true crime point of view, Gone Fishing. That was our investigation uh, a few years ago with RNZ and Stuffed into the murder of Dean Fuller Sands and Leah Stevens, the conviction of Gail Maney. Drop to nine now. A depositions hearing in the case of a young West Auckland man. It happened a very long time ago. It did indeed. This is a case that spans more than eight years. Basically, Dean that Sandys, uh, led to um, some interest from Tim McKinnell as an independent investigator, and it has been. It is a case now that is um, being looked at by various experts and, and questioned because there were questions around the safety of her conviction mm-hmm. for that murder. Um, the other one is the service. Hi, I'm John Daniel, and on my tenth birthday, my mum told me she used to be a spy. I wouldn't have actually said that, darling. My stepdad Jim, he was part of the SIS too. A few years before he died. Jim told me about an operation that happened one night in suburban Wellington. It might be New Zealand's biggest intelligence operation of the Cold War. Which was a story of New Zealand and overseas uh, intelligence officers breaking into embassies in New Zealand. Um, and that was an, a story that had never been told before. And so you can imagine, with the true crime one... Um, Take me through each sure. um in the various sort of considerations, legal considerations and journalistic considerations in each of those. Sure. Because they're uh, very different. They are they? very different. Yeah. And and something like a, a classical true crime podcast like Gone Fishing, you've got typically things that have already happened and have already been through court um, and have already been – there's a lot of hard evidence from the courts, from police, from – um, investigations that have been done. So you're talking, you have court suppression orders. You have, look, first and foremost, you have victims. Mm. Um, and in this case, you've got two people who have who have been murdered and you have their families. And so that always has to be forefront in your mind. It's a moral consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then what stems from that are legal considerations sure. about the rights, the, the victim rights of those of those families. Then there's also the reputation of, the of in this case, Gail Maney, who was accused of something. Mm. She was regarded as, quote-unquote, a murderer. Is that a safe... The whole point of the podcast was, was that, was that a safe conviction? Mm. So, yeah, 
court suppressions, alleged police misconduct, people's reputations, people's loved ones, and, you know, first and foremost, accuracy, balance and fairness, which is, you know, the basis of any journalism. Mm. The service, on the other hand, different set of considerations. Very different. Um, Things that are being told for the first time uh, which can impact diplomacy, government relations, Mm. um, things that a lot of people believe are secret for a reason and for good reason. And so you're going into a place where you have to make a case that these things should be known when a lot of people are saying we don't want these things known. The service contained the release of what you or you you talked about classified documents that had yep. been classified for the reasons of national security and you you what you procured them? It actually ca- the, the the interesting thing about the service was it came from a personal story. It yeah. was it was the story of John Daniel the host who was the child and stepchild of an agent involved in the raid. Yeah. So it was a family story that we then had to set about proving. Um, and that was an interesting discussion when we first started the podcast. Was it like, well, this is my this is my family story to tell? Mm. And I said, yeah, you've got to prove it. And how do you go about proving that? It's not enough just to say, oh well, as far as I understand, my stepdad did this, mm. did these raids on on embassies. You can't just tell a family story and leave it at that. You've actually got to prove to your audience that these things happened. Mm. Just to sort of root it in, these are the stakes. Like, what, I mean. With reference to gone fishing in particular, you, you're at risk of defaming people there. Yep. You're at risk of um, breaking court suppressions. Breaking court suppressions. You're at risk of, as I say, harming victims' families. Privacy considerations. Um, yeah. You know, you, privacy considerations. I mean, journalism isn't contained by the Privacy Act, but there are still um, ethical privacy issues yeah. that we have to wrestle with. We, you have to make decisions about everything that you record along the way what's usable, what is not usable, um, how you record things, who you record, how um, if you need to record something surreptitiously. Mm. Um, A lot, as you know from making podcasts, is that often, uh, for example, when you interview someone with the podcast, you approach them with the tape rolling, Mm. right? Every podcast, you'll hear the hellos and the knocks on the door. You're rolling when you approach them. How ethical is that if the person doesn't know that they've been recorded at the start? Obviously, you get permission afterwards and so forth. But all of these, you know, there are many, many considerations, even down to those small levels. What about from a legal point of view? Um, Look, everything we do on something like this is going to go through a lawyer um, and senior editors. From a legal point of view, it's it's mostly about something that you can stand up in court and and defend as as truth. Mm. Yeah. So that's going to be the main defence that ANZ will call on in these situations is the defence of truth. Yes, for this kind of investigation, I mean, your proofs around your defences around defamation can be honest opinion and so forth, but these are not those kind of cases. Mm. You really have to have proof. Mm. And the service was a really good example where early on in the case, we got in one interview confirmation that these raids took place. Mm. For us, as I say, it began as a as a story of someone's family events. We had to prove it. Um, we, in the midst of one interview, got confirmation from a from a serious senior person who would have known about these things, saying, "Oh yes, I remember these those those raids, blah blah blah." Who was, you know, and there was great excitement that we'd got this com- this confirmed from someone. And then it was, I had to be the downer and say, "Okay, now we've got to get the second source, mm, mm. because you cannot do anything without a second source." Exactly. Yeah. And that took months. The second source took months to get, but we got it. The burden of proof 
to get something, or, or the evidence base that you have to have to get something to air. Mm. Do you think that people have a, who consume this product have a good understanding of the amount of work and the burden of evidence that things that go to air have to have before they're okay to go? No. I, look, in the same way that I don't know what a plumber does under my sink when they yeah. come in to fix my, you know, fix my sink, or what a mechanic does under the hood of my car, I know that they at the end of it I can drive my car I know at the end of a podcast I can listen to something and I can assume that it's it's you know more or less accurate but no the 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 amount of work that gets done just in terms of the number of people spoken to the reading and and record searching that goes on the debates that go on between the producers and the hosts and the senior editors and so forth I mean in both of these podcasts with you know I'm involved in there's there is a lot of discussion about what's right and what I think a lot of people wouldn't appreciate is what's left out mm. you know there are recordings that we've got that would have been fascinating in both of those examples to add to the story but for one reason or another it might be privacy it might be the legality of those recordings it might be the um, a number of things we didn't use things that we could have used to tell the story so yeah there is a lot of decision making that goes on before you get to what you hear at the end of the at the end of your speaker. So, if there was someone who was listening to this who you know knows of a crime and has their suspicions about it, maybe they do indeed feel that they know who stole the cookies from the cookie jar. How would they protect yeah. themselves from defamation? Were they doing their own sort of Gonzo Pod series? I think they would be wise to seek legal advice before <laughs> yeah. pressing enter and publishing it. Um, come to me. No, um, <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be that would be the main thing to ensure that it's gone. It's been legally checked for risk to be reduced. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, quite often, you you will you will be vetting something, and you know, there's still going to be some potentially defamatory material there. But hopefully, you've helped the client uh, mitigate or reduce that risk, and that may be by making things more opinion oriented or. Um, referring, for example, you may be able to refer to rather than just blandly refer to an allegation. If it's actually been, um, if it's in a court judgment somewhere, you're able to fairly and accurately report that allegation as part of that judgment. You may open up other, another defence if you're looking for ways to incorporate a responsible public interest communication defence. You may advise the client actually this should be put to the the alleged perpetrator. Let's put these, seek an interview with them, send them an email with some questions. These are the sorts of things you can do to to protect yourself. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Ali Romanos and Tim Watkin. Matewa. Te